You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. Friends, uh, welcome to the episode. We're actually going to get right to it today. Uh, my guest is Sam Orberry. I first discovered Sam uh, back in 2017 when he gave uh, a very brief address for about two and a half minutes to the General Synod of the Church of England uh, in England. Sam's currently living in Nashville, but he, he makes his time between England and Nashville. He's a clergy in the Church of England. Sam also works for Ravi Zacharias Ministries. And Sam is a same-sex attracted celibate clergy. And w- what struck me about Sam's speech and as I've followed his work since then, not just what he says, he's obviously a very thoughtful person. His work comes from a very deep and personal place. But what also strikes me about Sam is his tone and posture. Uh, regardless of where you land on the very difficult topic of same-sex attraction, gay marriage, celibacy, what the Bible says, what it doesn't say, I'm aware that I have a listenership that is broad and there are people on all sides of this spectrum. Regardless of where you fall on it, uh, I I think in this episode what you're going to hear is somebody who's done tremendous deep work, somebody for whom that work comes from a profoundly personal place. But as with all of my guests, uh, we don't just talk about the topic of the day, which in Sam's case is same-sex attraction and where the church is at. But we also get into leadership anxiety. And I'm just so grateful to Sam for how he shared his heart and his incredible vulnerability and bravery on this episode. I I think you're going to love it. Uh, Here's here's our chat now. You know, Sam, as as I was saying before we hit record, um, I first ran into you and your work when you made a speech to the General Synod in England uh, in February 2017. Before we get into the speech, could you just give us the context of what was that meeting, what was your role, and what was everyone talking about? Thank you. So the, the General Synod is the um, the governing body of the Church of England, so the, the big Anglican denomination in, in the UK. Um, I had been a member on, on the General Synod for a couple of years so far, up and up until that point. Um, as, a, as a clergyman, I'm ordained in the Church of England. So I was part of part of that that synod body, and one of the things we were beginning to visit in our discussions was whether the church should be blessing same sex unions, whether it should be performing same sex marriages, that kind of thing. And we weren't really sort of already into that discussion yet. We were simply having a debate over whether or not to recognize a report that the bishops had prepared about where they thought things were at. And in their report, they had said something to the effect that they did not think there was a, excuse me, they did not think there was a widespread appetite for changing the definition of marriage in the Church of England. That in itself was controversial enough that the Synod ended up voting not even to acknowledge the report had been delivered. So that was was the context. We, We all knew this issue was going to be coming soon to the to the synod and obviously it's a very very contentious issue um as a significant body of people who would be aggressively in favor of the church performing same-sex marriages and that kind of thing so and a, a significant body who would be as as adamant that the church shouldn't be doing that so it was there was no kind of everyone knew it was going to be a bit of a bun fight um 
when the debate came round, um, you the, the kind of arcane procedure of general synod is you you sort of have to submit an application to be able to speak to the debate, and you don't know until the moment itself whether you will be called upon to speak. So you pre- you prepare a few remarks, kind of have them in your back pockets, and wait to see if your name comes up. Um, and the the longer the debate goes on, um, the they they will adjust the time limit for which each person can speak. So, and because it's a big body, everyone's going to want to be involved in the discussion. They're going to want to have a variety of voices being represented in the debate. I figured, you know, there's no way they would give us more than four minutes. Um, Probably wouldn't give us less than two minutes because you can't really say anything particularly substantive. So I sort of prepared what I thought would be about a three-minute mini speech thinking if if it turns out i've got four minutes i can you know take a breath and pause or something um and if it's two minutes i can just fly through it super quickly um so we'd already had i think by the time i stood up to speak i think we'd had well over an hour of debate we were we were in the latter latter part of the discussion um so i'd sat around waiting for ages and you know, we've had dozens of people up up till then already contribute. And part of me was thinking, oh, maybe maybe they won't call on me. Um, and I started having that feeling of, I don't know whether I was more nervous that they would call on me or more nervous that they wouldn't. Um, I, I believed I had something I wanted to say that I wanted the, the synod to hear. Um, but it was also a bit of an intimidating context. Things were already fairly heated um, in a kind of understated English passive aggressive kind of way. <laughs> so that's that was the context. And I, I knew I had a lot of people praying for me as well. I've been messaging various folks saying I'm, I'm wanting to stand and and speak in this debate. Please do be praying for me. Um the, it had already been a very there's been some very acrimonious comments made already by that point at, in various parts of the synod. So it, it really did feel like stepping into a bit of a spiritual battleground. Yeah. So then the synod calls on you. I remember watching the video, and it's you know the member from Oxford. Yeah. And you you get up to speak, and uh, one of the things we've not made overt yet is that you yourself are a same sex attracted person who believes in the traditional view of marriage, which is why I really wanted to have that voice heard because the the kind of stereotype people have is that you're either a kind of fully affirming, complete liberal, or you are a kind of homophobic right-wing bigot. That's a sort of the two <laughs> options a lot of people assume there are, that are available. And I was wanting to say, actually, there's a whole ton of us for whom, as far as the secular culture would be concerned, we would be seen as gay, having a gay orientation, that kind of thing. But actually, from our, my perspective, for me, it's a it's a pattern of temptation that I experience. Um, it is not something I would define myself by um, and fully believe in what the, you know, the Bible teaches about marriage and not just believe in it, but believe that to be good. Um, so I really wanted to sound that note um, and had carefully written the speech to address some of the issues that had already come up in that synod. Um, so 
But the other thing, the other thing I sort of hadn't really factored in was I knew that the debates were live streamed and that there, you know, there's some nerd somewhere who loves watching general synod debates. I figured, obviously, a debate about an issue this this contentious is going to have more than usual people watching, you know, from home. It had never occurred to me that that someone would actually take the clip of my speech and put it on put it online. Um, so, and I'm glad I didn't know that. I was I was already feeling a fair amount of tension just from the challenge of speaking to the room. I wasn't imagining myself myself speaking to the wider world or anybody else. I was simply trying to address synod itself um, based on the discussions we had already had as a body up until that point. Yeah, I think what struck me about the speech, Sam, because as I was saying before we started interviewing, this was my first introduction to you and your work and your way of talking about topics. What struck me is that I think the speech is like two minutes, 34 seconds in length or something like that. It's, it's you actually landed less than the three minutes. Um, but as you just kind of referred to, you actually made a, a very compelling case for the goodness of the complete experience available to a single human being, that, 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 that every one of us are able to be fully human regardless of attraction and sexual behavior. And a, as you said, you, it wasn't that you made a case against something, you're actually elevating the, the promise of the gospel. Um, I'd love to hear a little more about that. Yeah, and, and again, there are various reasons for that. Again, everything was being shaped by what had already been said and where the discussions had already been prior to this. So I knew that there would already be some some conservative voices speaking against gay marriage, that kind of thing. And I also knew that those who were pro-gay marriage would just roll their eyes and it wouldn't, you know, people talk past each other and no, one, no one's mind is changed necessarily, um, which is why I wanted to wanted to just sound a different notes and a my own experience would i figured probably give me a bit more of a hearing than than other people might have and b I, again i really wanted this to be do we do we think god is good in saying these things um i've i've felt as someone who does a lot of apologetics and who obviously has had to think through this issue a lot, you know, I, I want to know what we're for, not just what we're against. And with some some believers, it's very obvious what they're against, but I don't know what they're for. And the gospel is is good news. It's 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 a big positive. And so, in any area of life, and and this one no less than any any other area, the question is, what is the good news we have here? Yes, there are various prohibitions the Bible gives us. There are various negatives. But I'm always thinking, what is the positive behind the negative? Um, what is the good reason a prohibition is placed in Scripture? What good thing is that protecting that we can all celebrate and all honour? So that's that's kind of what I was I was going with that. I want I wanted to I didn't want people to think this was just simply a matter of negation. Um, and obviously secular culture has, and particularly in the UK, so lifted the idea of romantic fulfillment as being the highest virtue and means of self-fulfillment and all that kind of thing. So I just wanted to sort of subtly undermine that and um, bring it back to, is, is Jesus a good guy or a bad guy on this? Yeah, I, th I think you really got to the heart of actually 
the gospel that transcends attraction and everything. Like in, in Western culture, it feels like the gospel of Western culture is um, indulgence leads to freedom. And the gospel of Christ is restraint leads to freedom. And boy, is that ever a battle in our autonomous age where we all get to do what we think is right in our own eyes. It, it feels like that was part of your message as well as the invitation to believe that self-denial and self-restraint is in fact the pathway to this incredible freedom. Yeah, it's it's liberation. You know, I think of James 1, the, the law of God that gives perfect freedom, I think his phrase is. And again, those in our minds, those those are mutually exclusive categories, law and freedom. Yeah. Um, but actually biblical freedom is the presence of the of the right constraint. Oh yeah. The absence oh. of any constraint. And and certainly you know the the kind of sexual ethic we have today in the world and the sort of thinking behind that i think is deeply enslaving um if if you make sexual freedom the highest form of self-expression and self-actualization then actually your whole deepest sense of how your life is going is contingent on whether frankly you're having the kind of sexual relationships you want to be having um and if you're not the implicit message of our culture is that you are missing out on what your you know your your one real shot of having a complete life and i'm i'm convinced that that lies behind a significant amount of the mental health issues that that young people are experiencing particularly when it comes to sexuality is because we've we've raised the stakes so high on this that if you're not feeling sexually fulfilled then actually you're not really living um and a life without that kind of fulfillment is not a life that is worth living according to if you if you take that way of thinking to its conclusion yeah i'd like to explore that more with you sam but before we do i want to just finish one thing back at the synod Mm. because um you know obviously in this podcast we're always interested in what's going on under the surface in a leader and anytime a leader uh, feels exposed, they are going to feel anxious. It's just, you yeah. can take it to the bank. And that was an incredibly exposing experience for you. It, it was. And I, it was it a taste felt, of what happened. Yeah. So I was, once I started speaking, this is often the case with me, I'm, I'm more apprehensive about something. And then when, I, when it actually starts, I feel a, a measure of peace. So once I'd started speaking, I was okay. I was, I was very tense with the anticipation of it. Um, but once I got going, I was okay. And then afterwards, I I just wanted to go and hide somewhere because it, it felt like I'd, I'd done an emotional striptease. Um, and I felt I'd needed to because of the, again, the way the debates have been framed, I needed to speak of my own, my own experiences on this. Um, some of the previous speakers had said that, you know, Conservatives are making this out just to be about sex. So I wanted to, to talk about emotional, I can't remember the wording I used, but having kind of emotional longings for people as well. And that being part of the experience It's not simply lust. It's it's a bigger category than that. So I kind of had to spill all those beans um, to a group of people who largely weren't particularly my friends. And, um, and I... I, I'd already known on this issue anything you say will be used in evidence against you by someone. Um, 
there'll be some people who are, are more conservative who feel that you are legitimating, normalizing, promoting something by speaking of it from a personal experience. There are also going to be people who are less conservative who feel that you are repressing others and causing them psychological harm. So that that's one of the things I've had to come to terms with on this and no less so with that synod. But again, at that point, I, I was assuming that once I had concluded the speech and eventually gone back home at the end of it, that that was the end of it. Um, it was only the next day I realised this thing was then being sent around the internet and beginning to take on a life of its own. Um, but certainly after the debate ended, I just wanted to get out of the building and get away from from everyone. I, like, I, I felt like I was walking around as a naked man um, and just didn't want to be physically seen as a result of that. So I was trying to desperately liaise with a... A uh, guy who's a good friend of mine who's also on the synod to like, let's let's get out of here, let's go and grab a coffee. And I was trying to wait for him in the kind of main lobby and there's just people everywhere. And I was like, I was actually feeling very, very anxious at that point. And I just wanted to get out of the building. I just wanted to flee. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't like being seen. Um, and like you said, I, I, I felt very, very exposed and just wanted to get out of there. I think that's actually one of the reasons leaders burn out is because I think all effective leadership is vulnerable where you have to let people see you. And and so I'm always just really moved by bravery. And uh, I think that was the number one thing I took away when I saw the video is like, man, I, I've never heard of Sam before and never met him, but there is a brave human being right there. And my experience with brave people is they don't naturally see themselves as brave. I wonder how you see yourself in that regard. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't see myself as as brave simply because I, I do experience a lot of fear, um, and I, I guess we often have a working definition of bravery that seems to assume the absence of fear, and you just charge ahead. Yeah, William Wallace. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, no, I, I certainly felt compelled to speak into that meeting and on other occasions too and about this issue more generally. I, I just felt like a a burden on my heart to be doing that. Um, I felt it was what the Lord wanted me to be doing. Um, and I deeply believed it would it would serve the wider cause. So that that's why I I was prepared to speak. It's why I was prepared to go on Synod. Um, that incidentally was the first speech I gave at Synod. It was my maiden speech. So it was kind of, in one sense, it was in at the deep end, but I also felt, of anything, this is the one I most had legitimacy to speak on. So no, I wouldn't I wouldn't put myself naturally in the category of, of being brave. So Sam, you have a breadth of work. You work for Ravi Zacharias International. Um, you're deep in theology and apologetics, but of course, because of your own experience and your own way of seeing things, you're quite often asked to come and talk about same-sex attraction, LGBT conversations. I, I, I just would love to hear your take on where do you see the entire LGBT conversation in the church today? Um, why don't we, obviously that's a massive question. Why don't we begin by simply asking, where do you see it going well? Um, 
I see it going well in a lot of places. I've, I've been speaking on this in the US fairly extensively over the last four or five years. And I wouldn't pretend to have a kind of, you know, comprehensive bird's eye view of anything. But um, the trend that I've I've sort of seen the most is churches recognizing we kind of got this wrong 10, 15 years ago. We, we were speaking of this purely in terms of a, of a cultural issue, a kind of culture war battle to be fought without any real framework for how it could actually be a pastoral issue or even an evangelistic issue. So what, what encourages me the most is the number of churches who, who are simply saying, help us be a blessing on this. How, how can we be a blessing for Christians who are wrestling with this how can our church feel like a safe gospel environment for non-believers who are who would identify as gay or, or whatever? So I kind of feel like the, that that encourages me because I, I kind of feel like okay, people are asking what I would say that are the right questions on that. It's not merely a political football to to kick around. It's you know an awareness of there are people here who need Christ, and that means we don't just stand at the front of the church and scold them, but actually we need to. Yeah, we need to apply the gospel to this. So I'm I'm heartened by that. Um, I'm convinced that in as much as we're getting this issue wrong in the wider church scene, it's a function of getting the gospel wrong. And I, I don't believe that what I'm saying on this is is much more than gospel common sense applied to this one area of life. But I think where we had got things wrong over the last 15 plus years is we had so abstracted this topic out of a gospel framework we we then didn't quite know what to do with it um so i I try and talk a lot about you know the fact that all of us have have fallen in this area of life in one way or another to one degree or another um that we're we're fundamentally in the same boat um and just to let the gospel level the playing field and to remind ourselves that if you know there's no hope for gay people there's no hope for anyone um, it's not a separate species of sin. It's not a different species of sinner, um, which to me is gospel common sense. But then I've I've had to to live this for the last twenty five years as a as a believer. Um, so, but that that seems that what I've noticed is is people coming away not so much with a fresh understanding of sexuality, but with a fresh understanding of the gospel, which makes me think, like all historic heresies. It's one of the things God uses to, you know, help us to to dig more deeply into orthodox truth. And so I think one of the good things the Lord is doing through these controversies, and it's obviously a very challenging time for the church on these issues, but I think one of the things the Lord is doing is, is just bringing gospel clarity to us at a point where we may have been lacking it previously. So I'm optimistic. Um, I see. I still see a lot of Christians who I feel the the tone and posture is wrong, even if the theology may be technically correct. But I see a lot of other churches where there's a there's a very kind of winsome pastoral tone. And frankly, churches that are seeing a harvest where they do bring grace and truth to their gay friends and neighbors. So I think it's a great time to be a Christian. It, it feels to me like one of the pinch points, the, the churches you're describing now, these winsome, they're open, they're wanting to be they're wanting to be driven by the gospel and pastoral care. It seems to me that one of the pinch points in Western culture, at least, is for a church that considers itself under the authority of Scripture as best as they understand it. 
they're affirming of same-sex attracted people, but then some same-sex attracted people are coming into the church requiring them to be affirming of same-sex marriage in order to feel accepted. You know, we were talking earlier about the, the, how our culture really heightens uh, romantic and, and just connection, human connection in romantic relationships. I, I know for our church, that's the pinch point we're at is um, how do we have a, uh, when we are affirming of same-sex attracted people as fully bearing the image of God, just like anybody um, fully eligible for the grace of God, but we still hold a what would be called a traditional view of marriage, that appears to be particularly, <laughs> uh, by the way, Sam, I'm the world's king at the most convoluted questions. Uh, so sorry. Um, but particularly with uh, existing long-term intact gay families, gay couples with long-term relationships with children wanting to be fully participating in the life of our church. As I've been in dialogue with those really phenomenal people, that's been the pinch point for them. I'd love to get your take on what you see there and what you would say to us. Yeah, it's it's messy for sure, um, but God is great at mess. So the, the, the principle I want to, to bring into play when this kind of thing happens is, does someone want to follow Jesus is the key thing. Um, and I've, I've met many people who've come into the church from a gay background and have started to feel drawn to him. They want to be fully involved in the life of the church. So the, the kind of question is, is always, where, where are you at with Jesus right now? Are you? Would you say you're a follower of Jesus? Do you understand what that means yet? Um, and if, if the answer is, yeah, I, I want to be a follower of Jesus or I consider myself to be a follower of Jesus, um, one of the things I then try and do is to show people how Jesus anticipates that following him is going to be costly, um, that that's something he wants people to know before they sign up. And the language he uses in Mark 8, 34, 35 is, is actually the language of, you know, losing your life. That Jesus is saying there's going to be times when following him feels like it's killing you. <laughs> and so my question to, to anyone, not, not just someone from a gay background, but my question to anyone is, do you feel like you know Jesus enough and trust Jesus enough that you're willing to follow him, even though he's he's giving you advance notice, he's going to be saying some things that are going to be very, very painful? Um, and if the person is saying, I'm, I'm probably not there yet, then that's where I would say, well, then we love having you here, but it's probably not appropriate for you to kind of be baptized or publicly identify as a Christian or, you know, serve in certain aspects of church life. If they do say, actually, yeah, I'm, I'm, in, I'm up for this, then I, I have that in my back pocket. And when, when it seems to be an appropriate moment, um, I can then begin to talk to them about if they're in a particular kind of relationship or whatever relational baggage they have brought with them to Jesus to begin to think through what Jesus might want them to do with that. Um, so that, that's kind of dealing with the issue at a principle level. Uh, setting the categories up for having, you know, are we, are we willing to trust all of our life to Jesus, even though his way of sorting through it is at some point going to clash very deeply with our preferred way of sorting through it? The next stage is to think, well, with, with any relational situation someone brings with them to the faith, um, what is the healthy biblical footing to put that existing relational baggage onto? Um, and that varies from case to case. Um, for a 
for an unmarried heterosexual couple, it may well be that they need to get married. Um, for a same-sex couple, it's clear that it, it won't be appropriate if they're following Christ to be sexually and romantically involved. So that aspect of their relationship will need to cease. Um, for some people, and I, I never want to be prescriptive on this, for some people that will mean actually they, they can't live under the same roof. It would just be too much temptation. Uh, for some people, it may not be appropriate for them even to remain close friends if they don't feel they can exist healthily in that kind of space. Um, and for other people, I, I can think of, of two women I know who had been a, a lesbian couple for 10, 15 years who are now Christians and they're very close friends. Um, but they see themselves in the category of friends and not as anything other than that. And in fact, one of them said to me just a few weeks ago, um, was catching up with them both before the lockdown and <clears throat> just asking them how they were doing. It's been about a year since they came to faith. And they said, we feel as though our friendship is so much fuller now that we're sisters in Christ than it ever was when we were lovers. And so it made me think, okay, the, the gospel hasn't given them less love, it's given them better love. Um, and they, between them, have two two daughters, so they are, as a family, they're actually living with another church family as part of a bigger, now blended family. So they're able to be around each other, but without being the same type of family unit they had been. And I've seen other areas where that's, that's played out in a variety of ways. I, I know of another instance where, again, lesbian couple with a, with a daughter came to faith, and one of the couple, someone in the church, said, I, I live around the corner from you guys. I've got a spare room if, if either of you wants to, to use it. So one of the couple moved around to this other place and kind of took on more of an aunt role than a second mother role. Um, so it can, it can play out in a variety of ways. But the, the guiding principle for me is obviously they've got to be growing healthily in Christ but if, if the church is doing its job properly, however it looks, however it kind of plays out, they should be able to say they now have more family and not less. So even if they're not living together in the same way that they were, their overriding long-term impression shouldn't be that the gospel has torn up this little nuclear family, but actually the gospel has given them a far richer, deeper, broader family than they had before. Um, that's that's the promise I understand Jesus gives us in Mark 10 where he says those who leave fathers and mothers and, and so forth will receive a hundredfold in this present age. I think that really raises um, another pinch point. As, I, as I've listened to my brothers and sisters who are gay and married or pursuing romantic relationships, as we have these conversations, they have actually had brought a prophetic voice to a blind spot or a hypocrisy in the I guess I'd just broadly call it the evangelical church. I know in today's world, calling evangelicals politically loaded, but in the idea of you believe you're under the authority of the, of the clear teaching of Scripture as best you understand it. Yeah. They, they would say, listen, the, the modern Western church has so idolized marriage, has elevated marriage as the most heightened human experience and eliminated every other way to be human. Like the, the Protestant evangelical church, we don't have monasteries or, or friendship communities. Um, 
So having idolized marriage, we've then removed every other option for pure human flourishing. Yeah. And having done that, we've then snatched it from people who want it. You know, where I've had gay sisters and brothers say, I just want to be loved by a human the way you want to be loved by a human. I think that's a really powerful and accurate indictment on the modern church. And I think what you're presenting before us is, in a similar way, this broader vision of how to be human. I think so. I think the Bible gives us broader categories of human intimacy than our culture does. And I think the church has largely followed the culture and lightly Christianized it by saying marriage only. But I think we've still bought into the same basic model that intimacy equals romantic and sexual intimacy. And everything else gets very much downgraded and, and forgotten. And so I think part of the challenge of of the time in which we live is is to recover what was more instinctive for earlier generations of believers and certainly in other parts of the world is still very much common sense which is the kind of the the, the sense of extended family and also just the recovery of the depth of what friendship is meant to be particularly when you see it in the scriptures I'm, i'm always struck it's one of these verses i would never have believed were not actually in the bible but where where jesus in john 15 says to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. And then he gives a reason why. And the reason why indicates to us what Jesus believes friendship to consist of. Um, He says, I call you friends because all that the Father has made known to me, I have shared with you. So for Jesus, friendship is based on disclosure. We've turned friendship into a kind of very vague shared interest type category category. Jesus turns it into something far, far deeper. It's a, it's someone who knows your interior. It's someone who knows what's going on under the surface. It's actually intimacy, as as Jesus is describing it. And I think the more we recover that kind of vision for friendship and intimacy, it will feel like we're, you know, when we're then asking people to live under the Bible's sexual ethic, it will feel less cruel because we're not actually saying no intimacy. We're simply saying no sex outside of marriage. We're not saying no intimacy. We can live without sex. That's actually not that difficult. Um, But we're not designed to live without intimacy. And the Bible, I think, opens up categories of experiencing intimacy that we've not, certainly in the last generation or two, generally made available to one another in the church. I mean, we've got to get that part right if we're going to preach the theology that we preach. Otherwise, I think... I've seen churches where there is a commitment to sexual orthodoxy, but no commitment to healthy biblical intimacy. And I think that, that to me, falls under the category of what Jesus said to some of the religious leaders of his day, that you're weighing people down with burdens they cannot bear. If you're calling someone to live under the Bible's sexual ethic, but you're not providing healthy means of community and intimacy, Actually, I think you're asking them to live in in a way that God doesn't think is healthy. And like food, you've got to eat. And if the only available food to you is unhealthy, you'll end up eating unhealthy food because you've got to eat something. And if the only form of intimacy that seems to be available is unhealthy, you'll take it. So certainly my previous church in the UK, I remember we saw a string of, actually it was a string of middle-aged women who would leave the faith through marrying an unbelieving man. And at various points, you'd, you'd sort of see a few people in the church tutting and rolling their eyes at, you know, this is this is unfaithful and disobedient, and it is. But I also kind of wanted to say to the church, what alternative are we giving them? 
because it was very much a church based on nuclear families. And, you know, if you're, if you're in your forties as a, as a single woman, is the church actually providing intimacy? And my question was, do, do we as a church bear some responsibility for this person's disobedience? Yeah, I, I really appreciate, uh, I I, th- I personally think that is the conviction of the modern church as we had this conversation is what better news are we offering? Yeah, God is too good, isn't he? I mean, he God never says no to something without saying a bigger yes to something else. And that's the part I think we've not always been clear on. We've known and rehearsed our prohibitions. I don't think we've done as good a job as we need to of articulating what we're inviting people into by observing those prohibitions. Yeah, it makes me think a a good friend of mine who's a missionary in South Africa, uh, South America, sorry, 25 years. I've gone down to visit a couple of times. And um, as we talk about syncretism in his culture and how people are, you know, waiting the gospel to their own own ways, which of course we do in the West, we're probably the leaders of it in the West, capitalism and greed and all of that. But boy, he made a statement 10 years ago to me that it keeps convicting me where he says, I actually don't condemn any practice unless I can displace it with a better gospel practice for these people. He'll actually let people in his church continue their synchronistic practices until he and his wife can figure out a more compelling, more beautiful gospel practice. I, I don't know. I think there's something to what you're challenging us there. Um, I th- boy, it feels like we have a long way to go. It does, but I feel like we, we still have lots of questions, but I feel like we're asking the right questions now. And I think that's half the battle, actually. Um, if, if we're asking, you know, the Lord, is, the Lord is wanting to help us on this. And I think as, as we seek wisdom in different situations and different contexts, um, I think we're trying to do the right thing now more than we have been. I think one of the other challenges, Sam, is, is in our culture, it, it feels like people with different ways of seeing themselves and different struggles have become lumped together in one broad brush. If if ever we needed a nuanced brush to paint with, I think this is the conversation. But we have LGBTQ and then, of course, letters after that. Yeah. But transgender challenges are significantly different than same-sex attraction. I'm guessing you get invited to discuss transgender conversations as well yeah increasingly yeah talk to us about that well and it's been it's been actually quite revealing for me to have to begin to speak into that initially i was very reluctant to because i was thinking well i feel like i can speak about same-sex attraction with a measure of credibility simply because of my own experience um i don't have any experience of gender dysphoria um i've never wrestled with that kind of thing and therefore had felt reluctant to speak about transgenderism. But questions of sexuality almost always raise questions of gender identity. It's sort of seen as the next thing culturally. Um, and so I felt, actually, I, I just, I've, I've got to. But it, it was it was interesting for me doing that because it made me think, okay, this is what it must be like when other Christian speakers speak on sexuality and they don't have a personal narrative to kind of hide behind. But I think that there's there's some overlap between issues of sexuality and transgenderism. They're, they're all forms, broadly speaking, of sexual identity. Um, they're part of that LGBTQ plus kind of bracket. But they're also very, very different um, because one is based on, actually they're based on very different views of the body. Um, and there are very interesting debates going on within the secular world at the moment about the relationship between the LGB and the T. 
because fundamental to, to being LGB is the experience of attraction to people who have the same genitalia as you, whereas the transgender movement is trying to say, actually, that is not the issue. And there's some very, very heated discussions going, going on in the secular world where some gay people are being called transphobic if they're not open to dating someone with the same gender identity, but with different genitalia. That's seen as transphobic. And in response, some of the LGB people are saying, well, actually, you're being homophobic by right. the reality of same sex desires. So in one sense, there's a, there's a, a growing kind of, certainly in the UK, a, a, quite a significant um, debate going on there, um, even within the secular culture. So they're, they're quite different experiences. Um, but again, I, I think that the principles for me apply. And, and I think learning how to speak on same-sex attraction has helped me learn how to speak on transgenderism because the same principles apply, which is try and show how the gospel puts us in the same boat and try and speak with positives and not just negatives. And I don't have experience of gender dysphoria, but you know, I, I can say on the strength of scripture that, that no one has an entirely straightforward relationship with their body. Um, our bodies are part of the creation that has been subjected to frustration in Romans 8. And so we have we all have some types of issues with our body, whether that's health or body image or some experience of dysphoria. And we all struggle really to understand our real identity. Um, that again is a universal aspect of, of fallen humanity is we, we actually, we don't know who we are apart from being shown who we are by the God who made us. So I, I don't want a transgender person to feel that they are being fundamentally othered by Christianity. But at the same time, I, I do want to preserve the idea that I don't know what it feels like to be them. So I'm not putting them in a, in a different bucket of humanity to myself, but I am also respecting they have had experiences that I'm, I'm unfamiliar with, and I'm not pretending to know what it's like to be them. And at the end of the day, Jesus is always the answer. The gospel is always the answer to every aspect of our fallenness. And the way I think about it is, you know, he who knew no sin became sin for us. That is the that is the ultimate dysphoria. That is the ultimate, if you like, being in the wrong flesh, was when Jesus took our sins into his flesh on the cross. And I find that a helpful way of explaining it for people with some experience of body dysphoria to think, well, I'm not claiming Jesus experienced body dysphoria or gender dysphoria, but he experienced a deeper dysphoria simply by being the one who knew no sin and yet became sin for us. And we, we will never experience in our own brokenness anything that, you know, Jesus experienced ultimate brokenness on the cross. Um, so he always knows more about the underlying experience of brokenness than we do. That's why he's the the great high priest who's not unable to sympathize because he he has been tested in every way yet without sin. It doesn't mean Jesus knows what exactly what it feels like to be a lesbian, but it means Jesus Jesus has experienced thoroughly the aches and pains and longings of being in a very fallen world. He knows more about that than we do and is without sin. Thank you for that. Uh, Sam, before we get to the uh, gauntlet of anxiety questions, <laughs> uh, you know, you work for Ravi Zacharias International, you're an Anglican clergy, you're a theologian. Uh, other than this topic, 
um, what are you excited about nowadays, or what are you working on? Um, I my background is not has not been in formal apologetics, so I've been part of Ravi Zacharias's team for four years. It's a wonderful, wonderful ministry to serve in. But I frequently catch myself thinking, how did how did I end up here? Uh, these guys have all studied apologetics, and you can put them in a room with any kind of worldview and they will immediately kind of know how to approach it and answer it and all the rest of it. My, my background has been local church pastoral ministry, which, you know, is a form of training in apologetics because you, you're dealing with people's doubts and questions um, and objections at a ground level frequently. Um, so actually, the, the speaking I most love doing, any, any speaking on behalf of Jesus is a, is a deep privilege. But the best speaking gig for me will always be opening up the scriptures with my own church family. Um, I, I love being a Bible expositor, um, just getting to dig into a passage and to share Christ from, from a part of the scriptures with your own church family. To me, it doesn't get better than that. Um, I, I really love the, the, you know, the opportunities I have to commend Christ in, in other spheres by speaking on issues like sexuality and by doing more general work with in apologetics. Um, but I don't think I get more excited than when I'm, I'm, I have a passage to, to share with my own church family. And I enjoy, therefore, thinking and writing about those types of things too. Um, I'm, I'm working on a book at the moment about why the gospel is good news for our bodies. Um, and after that, I don't know what I'll write about next. I'll see what kind of floats up to the top of my heart to be thinking about and writing about. Um, one, of the, the, one of the doctrines I've been really enjoying exploring over the last five or ten years has been Union with Christ. And there's already a ton of great books on that, but I, I, that's, an, that's an area I, I would love to think about doing some writing on at some point. Sam, you're about to tread where lesser men fear, uh, the gauntlet of leadership anxiety questions. Um, the first question, you don't have to give us an exhaustive list, but most leaders, we find ourselves anxious in the same situations. The same things tend to make us anxious over and over again. Could you just give us one or two situations that you know are going to generate anxiety in your life? Well, almost always conflicts will. Um, for me, one of the, the key drivers of anxiety is the feeling of I'm in trouble and I've blown it. Um, and I can be feeling, you know, there may be a, a situation where I know I've not necessarily done anything wrong, but the perception is going to be, oh man, he's really screwed that up. So even, even in those situations, I will still feel significant anxiety. Um, and that, 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 that driver can then take many forms. It might be, I'm anxious about giving a talk because I'm nervous that I'm going to, I will have messed it up and let everybody down. Um, so that, that for me seems to be, as far as I can understand it, at least that the key driver of my anxiety is that feeling of you're in trouble. Everybody knows it. And actually I, I wake up more often than not, feeling a sense a deep sense of you're in real trouble and it, it can take me quite a while just to get 
into the day and to kind of that feeling won't necessarily completely disappear but i can begin to sort of take a few deep breaths scan the horizon and think okay i don't think i have an objective reason to feel that but um that certainly is a is a key element of it it for me and that's something i'm exploring with with a a wonderful christian counselor at the moment as well yeah yeah one of uh the aspects of a theology of anxiety is the competition between the story of the gospel and the story we tell ourselves. Yes. And, and, and I think the story we tell ourselves is the evidence that we're anxious. And so you've, you've kind of let us in on this idea that you wake up already in trouble. Um, I'm, I am putting you on the spot a little bit, but are you able to say it in a sentence like, here's the story I tell myself? Um, what would that be in that case? As in what I say in response to that, well, uh, I think the fact that you feel in trouble is actually the story you tell yourself. Can you put it into a, here's what I'm saying to myself or what I believe? I think so. And I, I'm, I, I only really feel it's been in the last year or so I've even noticed that this story is there because you're normally so embedded in it. You don't, I, I feel like I'm just at the stage now where I, I can step back enough and begin to see something of what's going on under the hood. But my my default settings are always that, you know, you've you've blown it you've disappointed you've let down um you've got it wrong um and i'm i'm exploring where that deep sense has come from um indications seem to be you know it, it's a kind of replay of experiences in the past and and all the rest of it but I, i've always the narrative i i have embedded deep within myself is that you are someone who just disappoints other people um, and you you get things wrong, and life is really simply the tightrope of trying not to blow every single thing that you touch. <laughs> but it's most extreme that that is the narrative. Uh, I don't feel it that intensely twenty four seven, but that is the underlying meta narrative of that's the world according to the inside of my head at least. Yeah, that's the gospel of Sam. Yeah, and. Occasionally, you might, it's as if I'm in, in a big stormy ocean of, you know, disappointing, con- being condemned, getting it all wrong. Occasionally, I'll land on a little island of, of a bit of peace and quiet and have a few moments of, oh, I think everything's okay. But I know soon enough, I'll be back and back on the ocean and desperately trying to find solid ground. And and so therefore, really, that the challenge is trying to understand that narrative as well as I can and crack it open as much as I can for the light of the gospel to shine into it. And I think for many years, I, I was just living that narrative that without even being able to put it into words, I would just wake up, feel something that I, I didn't even know how to articulate and spend, you know, a good deal of life trying to avoid being in that feeling. So, and one of the things I've, I've learned is because this is the story I tell myself, I don't have the control to rearrange my circumstances, but even if I could, that wouldn't fix the thing because it's it's ultimately a narrative within me. Yeah, it's it, the the best hope of dealing with it is to change that that core narrative. Um, so that's that's what I'm doing. I'm I'm trying to dig into scriptures that most explicitly and counterintuitively speak to me about the Lord's heart towards me, because it's very easy to extrapolate from that narrative and then project it upwards towards God and assume. If God feels anything about me, it must be, you know, a sense of regret, disappointment, frustration, weariness. And so I need to keep coming before those passages where, you know, Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly of heart. 
that's Jesus telling us explicitly what his heart is like. So he's not in a permanent state of wagging his finger. Hebrews tells me he's not ashamed of calling me his brother. It also tells me he went to the cross for the joy set before him, that somehow I have to presume from that my being adopted into, into God's family is part of the joy that Jesus had before him. Significant parts of me don't believe that, yeah. which is why I love that verse, I do believe, help me in my unbelief. Um, I do believe it, and I don't. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but it, to, to me, that the template for this has been the Psalms where David or whoever can say, you know, why are you, da- why, why are you downcast? Let, let's listen to what that narrative is. Let's actually, and this is the thing I've been learning to do in the last couple of years, is, is trying to, to listen to that narrative rather than just condemning it and going, that's all wrong. I mustn't be, I shouldn't be feeling that. That's deeply unchristian. <laughs> Shove it back under the rug kind of thing. So, and let's actually give, try and give words to it that I can then set alongside what I know to be true of God. Because trying to just suppress it and shove it to one side is, doesn't doesn't actually deal with it. It's like stepping on a hose at some point that the water's going to come out from somewhere. Yeah, especially when you're under pressure or under threat or yeah. tired. Yeah. yeah. One of the gifts of family systems theory is the way it helps you look at uh, generational patterns in your family. <laughs> and, and it's kind of what we're talking about now. We, we all inherit... Uh, what I call a family propaganda. It might be true, but it's not always true. It might be an event that we've then turned into a a way we see the world. And, you know, you go back through the Bible and you start to see family patterns in these families in Scripture. Jeremiah talks about sin being passed down to the third and fourth generation. And um, so so obviously that's a large topic. But as you think of your family of origin— um, sometimes it's helpful for a leader just to hear, okay, what is one trait in my family that's really served me well? You know, it's a it's a trait that's been handed down to me that's an asset. And then what's one trait that I've really had to to battle or gets in the way? What would come to mind for you? Yeah, and I think the answer to both of those are, are two different sides of the same coin. <clears throat> we um, generally, my family growing up, we we weren't combative with one another. There'd be occasional little mini explosions here and there. Um, but we, we didn't really do conflict. And in some senses that's good because, you know, if you, you don't just express every frustration you have and bludgeon everybody else with it, um, we don't kind of get in each other's faces typically. So I think there's, there, that's helped me see that there's, there's value in a certain measure of restraint. Um, not everyone needs to know every time you're slightly unhappy with them. Um, not everything everything needs to be a, a kind of screaming match or a conflict. But at the same time, the flip side of that is, is, is I think I never really learned how to do conflict in a healthy way. I think we have been conflict averse as a family, which means then when something does get so heated, you then don't have the... I know for me, if I feel in a really tense situation i don't feel like i have emotional control because i've not learned how to you know i i will go into flight mode so i've not really learned how to have those kinds of to be in those conflict situations when they are necessary and at times they are necessary but how to do that in a way that doesn't feel like it's you know existential threat um emergency get out of there kind of thing 
the the final question is is more of the beautiful side of the gospel. You, you know, John says, "Perfect love casts out all fear." I, I think in a theology of anxiety, it's very difficult to be filled with anxiety and aware of the presence of God at the same time. It feels like one can tend to displace the other. Not that God isn't with us in our anxiety, but our awareness of God's presence. And I, I do think one of the signs of that is we always feel like it's on our shoulders or, or we're doomed. Or And so I, I get fascinated by, okay, how can we encounter the love of Christ in these little moments in our life in a way that just displays anxiety? So to that end, Sam, when in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? I suspect it's when I, I feel like I'm, do you mean by God or by other people or just more generally? Yeah, either way. Certainly, um, g- given my internal kind of story, I think I feel I most feel love when I move beyond an absence of threat. That's always good. But when people are, are doing things for me that they didn't have to do, they're kind of going out of their way to express mm. love or gratitude or appreciation, um, those kind of unmerited moments of, of grace in everyday life and friendship um, that show me someone, you know, has been thinking of me or cares about me. Um, I, I think I feel most kind of safe to slightly switch the category when I know I'm with a group of friends and there's no threat. That to me is safety. Um, it's it's only in one sense a, a temporal form of safety because you know there's, there's always the possibility of again letting someone down. My internal narrative will say that you know if they get too much of me, they'll they'll weary of me and tire of me. I'll I'll just be an annoyance to them. Which is why trying to to dig into friendship with the Lord is is important, and to think that actually He sees all the worst of me and is still moving toward me and not away from me. Um, so one of the passages I keep coming back to is Jesus responding to that to the leper at the end of Mark chapter one, where the leper comes up to Jesus and says, you know, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And the fact that Jesus reaches out and touches him, Jesus doesn't kind of go, ah, you're gross and run off in the other direction. He he moves toward that person in all of their their kind of messiness. And he still does. He's drawn to us in our weakness rather than repelled by us in our weakness. I'm still learning that. I'm still having to preach that to myself. I still find that deeply counterintuitive. But it's it's there in the scriptures. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Sam, thank you so much for your time. This interview has been poignant and a delight. And I just really appreciate you being willing to come on and, and share your heart. Oh, it's my, my deep pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Great to get to know you and hear more about your ministry too. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.